Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We often think about maximizing happiness. We have the right to pursue happiness. But, but the things that truly give us long-term joy are not really the things that give us happiness. It's kind of an interesting conflict. Like if you thought about every day and you say, I just want to be happy today, what are the kind of things you would do? Probably get drunk more. Uh, you would probably watch more sitcoms. Uh, but the things that give us a pleasure over the lifetime are not those, right? If, if, you, if you lived all your life and you got drunk every night and you watched two sitcoms every day, you would not end your life and say, this was an amazing life. The things that we do that get us to feel that we've done something and, and get us the, the true deep sense of, of happiness and accomplishment are things like running a marathon and climbing a mountain and, and writing a book and inventing something. And those are things that don't maximize momentary happiness. They maximize a very different sense of happiness. And I think that we overfocus on the daily happiness, give up on the long-term happiness and in the process don't do things well. And we don't do it in our own personal lives and we don't do it at the workplace. What you're saying is, I'm going to live life in such a way that the people around me could potentially find more meaning in their lives. Dan Ariely, is that how you say the name? Ariely? Uh, Ariely. Ariely. It's kind of in English. Ariely, more in Hebrew. I, I, I don't mind so much anyway. How about Dan? Dan, very good. You've been on the podcast before, so I should re remember how to pronounce your name. But you uh, shouldn't. You are the author of Predictably Irrational, Irrationally Yours, the dis the the honest truth about dishonesty, um, the upside of irrationality, the recent documentary on dishonesty, which was yep. excellent. Thank you. Uh, and your new book just out, Payoff, uh, which talks about motivation. Yeah, And so we're going to talk a little about that, but I kind of want to talk about everything. Is that okay? Everything is great. So it seems like, first, motivation is really related to uh, a lot of the topics you cover in dishonesty and in a weird way because sometimes there's this edge between motivating someone and maybe being a little bit on the gray area of being dishonest. But let's hold that off for, for a second. Tell me about motivation, about payoff, just from your description of the book. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, you, you're book, tempting me. Thank you. But you're tempting <laughs> me by going to motivate to dishonesty. But okay, we'll we'll talk about. So, you, or if you tell me that the book is the greatest book ever, then no. that then we could segue into okay, dishonesty. That, okay. <laughs> so, so, so the the reason for me to to write this book was that I, I observed some things about my own life that seemed to be kind of counter to the principle of looking for happiness. And uh, the, the so so meaning, you in your own life were looking for some achievement or goal or theme that re- w- would not necessarily make you happy. That's right. So I, I I start the book by describing a very difficult case I had with a, a kid who was burned much worse than I was. And, and just backstory, yeah. can you tell that backstory? Yeah. So I was I was uh, badly burned, about seventy percent of my body. I spent about three years in hospital when I was uh, a teenager, and um, you know, kind of being ripped out of life and being put on a bed for so many years. And you know, even though I'm now forty nine, it's been it's been a while. I still had surgery last year. Right. So so uh, what, every- what was the surgery for last year? Last year, actually, I'll, I'll send you a picture if you want to see. Actually, I, I can, do can we see. do? Can we? Can we show something on? Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> I'll, I'll keep on saying as with this. But uh, one of the things that happened with with severe burns is that they keep on shrinking, and kind of dealing with shrunk uh, scars. So, for example, if I move my hand, my neck moves a little bit, right? Because the skin is like one piece; it doesn't have the flexibility of regular skin. That's what scars are. So my scars got a little tightened up. Here you can see the this picture of this uh, surgery. So, so I'm looking at a picture of of the right side of you, and there's a scar up and down the arm. That's right, and and you see this zigzag shape. Yeah, this is called a plastic Z. So what happened is that you have a scar that goes straight through, and it just gets tight like a like a rope. And if you make it like this, it's like make it like a like accordion, right? And all of a sudden you have a Z, and now it has extra flexibility. You can you can push it up and down. So anyway, so, so they they what they do is then they they stretched out. What they do is they interleave piece of healthy skin with unhealthy skin to create this zigzag, and now you can uh, have a little accordion movement where you can stretch okay. uh, stretch up and down. Um, but you know, even though it was a long time ago, I'm, I'm still having challenges and pain and, right. uh, and and surgery and so on. It it doesn't it's not something that goes away. So. Um, so it's kind of the backstory, but also it's a story of my life. I, I, you know, I'm a, I have limitation in my hands. I have pain in my in all kinds of places. It's not as bad, right? I used to. I had terrible three years in hospital. Everything after that has been better. And obviously, you had terrible pain in the hospital. Oh, I imagine burns, pain is burns, not as great now. Yeah, burns are some of the worst uh, pain there is because you know it's it's the removing bandages. When your nerves are growing, so imagine your, your skin is gone and the nerves are growing and as they grow, uh, somebody tears bandages off because the bandages also because there's no skin. If you have a regular plaster, uh, you know, it's, it's on top of the skin and the skin doesn't adhere to the bandage. But if you have bleeding, uh, bleeding arm uh, because there's no skin, the bandages basically kind of become one with your with your flesh, it's incredibly hard to take it off. And so, just just to set the uh, further context, a lot of the work you've done on irrational behavior started from your study of was it correct for 
the nurses to rip off the bandages fast as opposed to slow. That's right. And so they had they almost engaged in irrational behavior, but for predictable reasons. That's right. And that became the initial basis of your work. But I think this book, Payoff and Motivation, is actually getting you closer to the heart of what happened to your life. It it is. And 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 I start with this with the story about the kid who was who was burned um, worse than I were, and I was kind of tangentially involved a little bit in some decisions about his life with with his mother, and it made me realize all kind of things about my own my own past. It also got me to kind of confront his misery and 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 so on. But but the point the point of the the story in the book is that when when I look at a lot of the things I'm involved with. Uh, they they're just painful, they they are miserable. Uh, like what? Trying to help somebody else who's really suffering. So uh, in, in this case, um, I I found it very interesting. So this is in the first chapter of the book. This woman calls you, and her two sons have been burned badly, and she wants your advice and help. You didn't know her in advance, um, and you went and helped, and that's a really good thing to do. I mean. So the, the first question is, a lot of times people call many people for help and not everybody responds. Like, why, did you respond because of your own real intense history with, with burn? So the, the first answer is yes. Um, but, but I try to respond to lots of, lots of things. Um, you know, I wrote, I wrote in a very public way about my injury and the challenges and so on. And when people reach out to me, um, it's kind of a continuation of a discussion. Uh, after predictably rational, maybe six months after it was out, I was on flight and I sat next to a woman and she was so happy it was me because she said that she was a diabetic patient and she was debating whether to install an insulin pump or to take insulin every day uh, with an injection. And she said that after reading predictably rational, she had a, in her mind a discussion with me about what to do. And then she said that in her mind, I I, I told her she should Install an insulin pump, and that's what she did. I went ahead and did. And I, uh, we actually had a discussion. I told her I agreed with her analysis. That's indeed what I would have would have told her. But I feel that you know because I'm I'm writing about uh, social science, but I'm also writing about my my life. I feel that I kind of started discussion with lots of people, and uh, if people reach reach out to me, it's kind of a continuation of a discussion. It's not that people are reaching out of the, you know, out of the blue, but I write something, they want to react, they have a question, and so on, and and there's some relationship of um, give and take, and I try to respond as much as much as possible. And so in this case, it was particularly painful after a few days. One of this woman, so she had two sons in yeah. the hospital, and one passed away, and the other was facing excruciating pain. That's right. So and didn't so, even know that his brother. Had died. That's right. So in the beginning, she asked me uh, what to tell her kids, uh, and you know that was very tough. Like what what to say, not to say. Then when one son passes away, she asked me whether to tell the other son about the, the one that passed uh, away, and you know she she gave me these really tough moral dilemmas of of what to say. But but it, it it you know the story continues, and after that, she asked me to uh, when her surviving son. A few months later, was kind of out of uh, risk for dying. She asked me to send him an optimistic letter 
about uh, how his life will turn out. And I was not too optimistic, right? I've been many years after this, after the initial initial injury. But life is tough. Life is tough as a injured injured person, and it's certainly not going back to normal. And I didn't know to lie, to be truthful, how much to lie, you know, also with my research on dishonesty. And I actually cried a lot in those days, really debating what to say, um, how optimistic should I be, what can I say, and so on. And eventually I found some compromise I was I was happy with. I told him that he'll never have a normal life, that he shouldn't expect one. But I also told him that technology is on the side of people with injuries. Like we get disproportional help from technology. And I also said that the, the workplace is changing and you can find all kinds of ways to contribute to the world. It doesn't have to be in the nine to five uh, approach. And he needs to uh, take more control, figure out his path in life, but it will not be easy, but he, he will he will find something. So I kind of, tr- it was a mix of being truthful and and motivating. Uh, and motivating, uh, but in, in not, I, I also told him, by the way, that he needs to realize that he has quite a few years ahead of him of, of misery and it will go dark from time to time, uh, but the time will, the time will pass. And um, so I didn't tell him all the uh, miserable things. So, but, but the real, so, so, okay. So, and then, and then when I went to visit him in hospital uh, quite a while later, uh, I, I didn't know how it would feel, but it was actually quite good. Uh, he couldn't talk that much. He still had uh, challenges with his vocal cords. When they put the thing to breathalyze him, they injured his vocal cords. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things is you go into hospital for one thing, you get other things as well. Um, but anyway, the, the discussion was good. It, it, I, I spent about three hours with him and it was quite good. But there was this moment when the nurse came and she told him he was going to have a new treatment. And I knew that the treatment he was going to have and wasn't something I enjoyed, but it was new for him. And, you know, I kind of remembered what it was. And then he started negotiating with her. And he said, can I do it tomorrow? And she said, no. He said, can I do it in a few hours? She said, no. Can I do it in an hour? No. Can I do it in one just part of my body? No. And at that point, I was just too weak to stand. Mm. I just I just sat down and I put my head uh, between my legs and I was just trying to breathe heavily. Uh, because I remember all these futile negotiations I had in had in hospital, and you know, when I thought about hospital all these years, I mostly thought about the objective aspects of being in pain, and I didn't really feel or think as much to the feeling of being helpless. But this discussion between him and the nurse kind of brought all the the feeling of being helpless. You know, somebody else is determining your your day and your routine and when you'll have pain and everything everything about it was was determined by other people and I kind of realized how important being in control is and and this happens this question happens obviously in a high stakes situation like in a hospital but really in in many people's daily lives like when you feel like a boss has control over your life or a spouse or friendships or whatever Whatever, or a political election, whatever political it is. Election, yeah, a lot of people <laughs> attribute all their dreams and hopes to whoever, whichever superhero they have wins an election. Yeah. So, so, so I start I start the book with this with this story, and and for me, there are kind of two lessons there. One is the kind of the lesson of understanding the importance of control, 
and the, the devastating part of being out of control. But, but the second thing is about what drives me to do those things. Right? And, and if, you look, if you look at this process of helping this kid, uh, there were no moments of joy there. There were no moments when I was, you know, I don't know, smiling from ear to ear or particularly happy. Or if you image my brain as I was going through it, you would not uh, see something that looked like joy. Nevertheless, even though it was painful and even though I cried, like everything I exhibited was of misery, I felt it was important and useful and something that attracted me to participate in this rather than run away from it. And it, it made me realize that we often think about maximizing happiness. We have the right to pursue happiness. But, but the things that truly give us long-term joy are not really the things that give us happiness. It's kind of an interesting conflict. Like if you thought about every day and you say, I just want to be happy today, what are the kind of things you would do? Probably get drunk more. Uh, you'd probably watch more sitcoms. Uh, but the things that give us a pleasure over the lifetime are not those, right? If, if, you, if you lived all your life and you got drunk every night and you watched two sitcoms every day, you would not end your life and say, this was an amazing life. The things that we do that get us to um, feel that we've done something and, and get us the, the true deep sense of, of happiness and accomplishment are things like running a marathon, and climbing a mountain, and uh, writing a book, and inventing something. And those are things that don't maximize momentary happiness. They maximize a very different sense of happiness. So think about a marathon. Every moment is miserable, right? There's no moment in which you say, oh my goodness, this is just amazing. But, even but the training whole, for it. Even training for it. Um, but, but it does give people a tremendous sense of, of happiness that comes from achievement and meaning and accomplishing things and, and so on. And and I think that we overfocus on the daily happiness, give up on the long-term happiness, and in the process don't do things well. And we don't do it in our own personal lives, and we don't do it at the workplace. So there's, there's two things there. One, one uh, I wanted to hit on, which is you use the word meaning. And I really see this book pay off. Uh, and it's, it's almost an unfortunate title. I agree with the title. I'm not criticizing it. it. It's done, it's done. <laughs> but I really see this as almost like, in a weird way, a sequel to Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl because the I, how did well, he stay... Obviously, it's an extreme case, okay? I'm not... No, no, no. I'm just saying that that book, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't want to be put in the same category with Viktor Frankl. Maybe, he's he's the best book, maybe that's the best book ever. So, so, But I just wanted to say, though, he's in this hor- horrific situation where it seems like there's no way out and there's nothing to hope for, and yet he finds that the reason for his survival and for the for may, perhaps many of the survivors is that they found something to um, attach meaning to. For him, he wanted to see his wife again. Uh, that was one, and he never did. But that was yeah. one thing that he found meaning in that kept him going. And the other is that he had this idea that he wanted to write about, and that kept him going. Yeah, and and it is it is an amazing uh, book, and it's a very important book, and and. He of course takes the, you know some of the darkest period in in men's history and basically kind of say how how do you shift your f- mindset from kind of pure desperation and fear into something that you can live with and uh, try to find motivating and he does it in all kinds of ways like and, looking and, for his life his well, wife and and enjoying small things that happen. 
And I think those are the kind of lessons that we try that I'm trying to to break. We're trying to break down in the research, right? So some of the the empirical investigations are around that, a bit more mundane, right? We build Legos. We don't. Um, yeah, you know, you have choices. Like, what do you do? Which which experiments do you do? Do you decide to do the Legos? Um, but but it is kind of a, a the small version of uh, feeling desperate and hopeless. And well, well, and then the the other thing um, you you uh, sort of say is. There's a difference too between motivating others, saying things to motivate others, or, to, or doing actions to motivate others, and self motivation. So in Viktor Frankl's case, he's self motivating. In the mm. case with you and this patient, you were trying to motivate him to yep. be a little more optimistic. Or in the case of a, a classic case, boss with employees, a boss is usually trying to say things or do things or provide incentives to motivate employees. That's right. So 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 let I want to talk about self motivation in a little bit, but Let's talk about like motivating others really reminds me a lot of like you use the word motivation. Other people use pers- persuasion. Other people use selling. Mm-hmm. Like what's the difference between, because also a negotiation, you know, yeah. the other side, you're, you're negotiating with them to be happy or to do what you want to do. And you're yeah. using all sorts of techniques. It's almost a trade. So, so what, how would you distinguish between motivation and let's say just pure selling? Okay. So, um, I'm not sure it's an ideal uh, definition, but I think of increasing motivation as something that everybody benefits from. So let me give you an example. What do you mean? So so imagine two workplaces or two homes or two two environments. Uh, let's just say two factories. Uh, in one of them, the employees are demotivated. What happens? The employees are miserable. They show up, they're unhappy, they don't like what they're doing and so on. And productivity is low. And the people who are managing the place are not benefiting a lot. The second place, people are happy. Employees are happy. They come to work. They enjoy what they're doing. They feel accomplished, motivated, and so on. Uh, they produce more. And the people who run the place are happier as well. And, and, and for me, motivation is the kind of the key to just provide more of everything for everybody. Right? If you, if you come to work or you come home, and you're just happy with what you're doing, everybody benefits. So, so it's interesting because you, you're sort of suggesting that, let's say you're a boss slash husband slash friend, there's probably a way to live your life that is motivational and inspiring to the people around you and in general have them respond to you better and produce better work. Right. You basically create your world by being a more uh, motivational sort of person. And so, what are some attributes of That's that right. type of person? Um, but but wait, so so if you th- if you say like selling, selling selling seems to me like a zero sum game, right? I want you to buy something, and I need to persuade you to to buy something. There's there's a transaction, and if and if you buy, I win, and if you pay more, I'm better off, and so on. And but they're, they're like shades though, because motivation could be of it's not always win win. Like if you needed employees to stay working over the weekend. You have to figure out the right incentive. Is it a is it a pizza? Is it a compliment? Is it yeah. a, is it money? Yeah, and so that's a transaction too. So, so there, there are shades. there are transactions, but but I want to argue that the the main metaphor is the pie can get larger. Okay, and we have to figure out that the pie can get larger. And our our goal is not just to transfer 
wealth from one person to another, but to make everybody better off. And and we can do that, right? So I would be um, unhappy if if people basically looked at this as a way to say, oh, I want to abuse people. Here's, right, so it's not like uh, manipulation. Your motivation is not the same as manipulation, mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, okay, so let's let's dig down on that. So, what are the what are basic attributes of someone who wants to live a motivational life so people are responsive to them? Yeah. So, um, if you remember the the stuff we did on uh, the Bionicle experiments, which was uh, very much taken from Viktor Frankl, um, so the experiment was very simple. Uh, and about small meaning. Uh, we got people came to the lab and we say, Hey, would you like to build some bionicles, Lego? And they said, Yes. And we say, Okay, we'll pay you uh, $3 for the first one. And they start building the first one and they finish it. And then we say, Would you like to build another one for $270? And they say, Yes. And we take the first one and put it under the table and they build the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one until the, the pay wage is so small that they say no. Right? And different people stop at different points. Uh, other people, uh, this is the condition by the way we call the meaningful condition. And we told everybody that when we finish the experiment, we're going to disassemble all the uh, bionicles, put them back in their boxes, and have them ready for the next participant. In the second experiment, uh, we gave people the first bionicle, $3, they finished building it, we, we took it back, we kept it on the same table. We kept it on the table that we were sitting across from them. We said, well, do you want another one? They said, yes, we gave them the, the second one. And as they were building the second one, we were taking apart the first one and putting the pieces back into the box. So they saw explicitly the meaninglessness of That's their right. work. Yes. And then we asked them if they wanted to do a third one. And if they said, yes, we gave them the first one, the one that they built and we destroyed. And they kept on going back and forth and back and forth. And we call this the Sisyphic condition. If you remember the story of Sisyphus, Sisyphus was punished by the gods to, put, to push the same rock up a hill and when it almost got there, the, the rock just went down all the way. And, and you can imagine how if it was different hills, right? Imagine there were like a thousand hills and you would just do the first and the second, the fourth. You will still have a sense of progress. But having to push the rock up the same hill all the time is, is kind of the essence of, you know, demotivation. And we basically found three things. The first one was that people stopped much faster, right? So the, the Sisyphic condition got people to stop faster. People got paid. Right? So if people were just there for the money, they would have continued in the same way. But seeing your work destroyed in front of your eyes has some demotivating aspect. The second thing was that we asked people uh, how much they enjoyed Legos in general. And what you expect is that people who enjoy Legos get some more internal value from it, would continue working even for lower wage because they enjoy it more. And in the meaningful condition, we got a nice correlation. People who loved Legos persisted more. People who didn't like Legos persisted less, well, as you would expect. In the specific condition, the correlation was zero. Right? What happened was that we kind of sucked the joy out of it. The people who usually enjoy Legos basically did not produce more than the people who didn't like it. Kind of the internal value of Lego, of building Lego and enjoying it, just went away. Because even as they're leaving the room, they could still turn back and see, that's what I created. It might be destroyed at some point in the that's future, right. but I can't even imagine it. Yeah, and... You know, these were, these were decisions they were making as they were building those things. So what happened is if you're building and nothing is destroyed in front of your eyes, you can at least imagine that it's not futile. But, but so many times you see things destroyed in front of your eyes and, and the sense of futility is just very hard to, very hard to deal with. Um, the last thing we discovered was when we 
when we took this experiment and we described it to some MBA students, and we said, predict, please predict how many bionicles people would make in this condition, how many will they make in this condition. We wanted them to, we wanted to get a sense of how big is the effect of meaning, right? Do people think that meaning is equal one bionicle, two bionicles, three bionicles? And what we saw was that people realized that the meaningful condition will have higher production than the other one, but they thought the effect was very small. So we understand that meaning is important, but we think it's a tiny effect, where in fact it's a much, much bigger effect. So taking it out of the lab and giving it to the listener right now, what should what's one thing they can do in their lives to help the people around them find more meaning? Because what you're saying is, I'm going to live life in such a way that the people around me could find could potentially find more meaning in their lives. Yeah. And that will in turn create this larger pie. Yeah. So, so the bionicle experiment is is not about cre- it's it's about creating more meaning by stop destroying meaning, right? Because we didn't enhance the meaning from the regular condition; we just destroyed it, and we saw how easy it is to destroy it. And I think the first lesson is: look at life, and look at how many times we're destroying meaning. Um, we get people to do things that are futile. Like we, we, you know, we ask people to submit reports that nobody ever look at. Uh, we ask people, like, you know, we ask students to write papers that we never grade and uh, give them deep feedback on. I mean, we do lots of things that we we don't treat the the labor as being useful and contributing. And do you so think, do you think this is related? This seems like um a big customer service thing lately. Like if I call, let's say my phone doesn't work and I call the phone company, sometimes, and I, sometimes I say, no matter what I say, this is my problem. And the first thing they say to me is, oh, that sounds like a horrible problem. I'm really sorry you're going through that. Is that their attempt at giving meaning to my insignificant phone problem? Um, I'm not sure it's, it's about meaning, but it is about being heard. So, so it is about you are a person and we, we, we understand where you're standing from. So it's not, it's not meaning in the, in the regular sense, uh, but it is, a, it is validation. But I they're think, not destroying I think, my, right. my uh, feeling that this is important. <laughs> that's right. So, so I think that's the first lesson. Is let's, just, let's just look at the places where we destroy uh, the feeling of uh, contribution and, and so on. That, you know, when, when, I was, when I was still teaching at MIT, they, we got the, this new system of SAP, and this was like an accounting system. And my assistant uh, became like an SAP slave. He all of a sudden, all the things he had to do was to put stuff into SAP and press a button and then it will go to somebody else to press another button. And and he was just completely demotivated, right? There was There was nothing that he was doing that felt meaningful. He was just like a slave to this bureaucratic bureaucratic system. But but that's a very common thing like in the workplace yeah. when suddenly let's say as a company moves from small business to big business, often employees start to f- have to fill out, well here's how I spent my hours per day. That's right. And that's not for a meaningless reason, it's for a reason uh, are we correctly allocating people? How can we save time, save well, money and so on? Well, I'm I'm not sure. So Okay, so first of all, I think we need to stop decreasing uh, de- destroying motivation. The second thing about uh, increasing uh, motivation, there's lots of things that give give meaning. So the open source software, 
movement, for example, benefited a lot from making a simple rule that says that every time you write a piece of code, your name is going to be associated with it forever. Think about what it does. It basically puts your stamp on something. Right? Maybe the metaphor of you know, dogs peeing on the side. But you know, you're saying, this is mine. It's always going to be, it's going to be mine. And that created tremendous sense of motivation. Now all of a sudden you can, you can have your stake. So think about this idea of giving people credit. We are so terrible in sharing credit. I see so many people fight on whose idea was it. I understand this. Of course, everybody wants to feel that it's their idea and it's their contribution and so on. But in the world, credit is not a zero-sum game. We can share credit around. Everybody's, everybody's happier. So how do we give a sense of meaning? We give people credit. Uh, we give, um, we let people put their names on things. We say thank you for their contribution. We basically do all kinds of things to basically say, this is this is yours, and I appreciate it that that you've done that you've done this. And you know, I, I should say this doesn't flow in one direction. So we often think of a boss giving employees credit, for instance, but employees can give a boss credit too. And which is a very unusual move, and that often creates a lot of goodwill uh, yeah. going down the road. Yeah, it's a. It's not just about. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's not about just management. It's about um, everything we do. Right. It's it's true for how you deal with your significant other and how you deal with your kids. A lot and, of it has to do with presence too, like recognizing that somebody did something. Mm-hmm. Because often we, yeah. particularly with spouses, they often like tune out each other's basic routines, and but acknowledging them. Uh, suddenly can change the whole relationship by adding meaning to it. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a study by uh, Mike Norton and a few other people that they basically said, you know, almost everything online, we don't see how much effort put in people put into it. Like you do a Google search, just you get there. But you know, do you know how much effort was put into it? What was going? On? So they say, kayak seems to be the one exception. Kayak, you know, kayak. It's a it's a the search travel. engine. It's it, exactly, but. One of the interesting things that Kayak does is to tell you how much effort they're doing for you. So what happened when you search on Kayak, you have a little spinner that says, we're searching United, we're searching American. And not only that, but the results are rearranged in all kinds of ways. So so imagine the following experiment. Condition one, you search for a flight, you press enter, boom, you get the result immediately. Condition two, you search for a flight, you press enter, you get 10 seconds of this wheel of death. One, two, you know, 10 seconds, you just wait, then you get the same results. People hate that. Condition three, you search for something, you press enter. You wait 10 seconds, the same 10 seconds, but those 10 seconds are filled with, we're, doing, we're searching United, we're searching American. Here are the results, we're resorting them by all kinds of things. People appreciate that more than not waiting at all. Hmm. Why? Because you said to yourself, wow, look at this. It's unbelievable. All of this work was done for me. I could have never done it myself. So there's lots of things that, that things happen in the background, but we don't appreciate. Now, interestingly, the same thing is also applicable for our personal lives. So imagine uh, you go to couples, and a lot of people have done this, you go to couples, you put them in different rooms, and you say, from the 100% contribution to the family, what percentage of work do you do and what percentage of work do you do? People say their numbers and you add the two numbers up and it's always more than 100%. And, and the reason it's more than 100% is that everybody sees the details of what they're doing. 
you know, I take the trash out. There's like a 16-step process. It's involved, it's complex, it has all kinds of things. My wife, she just writes the bills. That's just the one thing. It's, it's really simple. And, and one of the lessons here is to, to be more kayak-like, right? When you come home, just share, just tell people what, what you're doing for them because other, otherwise people don't know. It's very easy to take people for granted. How can you do it without, uh, and maybe I'm just being naive here, how can you do it without bragging? Like in the sense that, oh, kids, I just closed a big deal so you two can go to college or whatever. So, so closing a big deal is about the outcome. It's not about the process, mm. right? But, but basically saying, here are the things I've, I've done. Uh, it, it's, it's more like sharing than, than bragging, Right? right. Here's the complexity, and here's how my day looks like, and and so on. And I also don't think you should do it every day necessarily, but but from time to time, it is very useful to give people a sense of what it is that you're contributing. And and again, the I guess there's there's two ways too, which is asking your let's say spouse or friend or whatever, tell me the details of of your day. Yeah. Like unlocking those details, unlocking that meaning. Yeah, and 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 you know this this idea of what is visible and invisible and what people see and don't see is actually very important. So I was in Soweto a few years ago. It's a, it's a slum in South Africa. And I saw a father buying funeral insurance for a week. People don't have money there, of course, and funerals are very expensive. So when people have a little bit of money, they sometimes go and buy funeral insurance just in case they die. And he bought this funeral insurance and in a very ceremonious way, gave the certificate to his to his son, and and said, "If something is wrong, here's the here's the insurance." And I thought that you know, usually when a breadwinner uh, does something good for the family, the family sees it, right? There's food, there's water, there's maybe kerosene, right? They they, they see something, but when somebody is buying insurance or they're saving. Uh, the most visible thing is they're taking away from the family. They don't see that they're actually uh, bringing anything. And and what his what his father was doing was to take something invisible that that looked like he's taking away from the family and making it visible and making it part of his contribution. Right. So it's not exactly bragging. I mean, you could say maybe it is, but it is about saying here here are the things here's a here's a way to represent something that I've done for the family. Out of selfishness, but but just so everybody knows uh, about it, and I thought it was a really interesting thing, and we've actually done all kind of experiments uh, on this, showing it's a very very effective mechanism to increase saving uh, rates, for example. The the other thing, though, it's okay to jump. Yeah, 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 of course. So so you mentioned rules and bureaucracy. That's that's another thing. I I I feel that a lot of rules and bureaucracy are to prevent a few people from misbehaving at a tremendous cost to everybody else. So, you know, you have, I mean, organizations become more and more bureaucratic and lawyers get the hold of it and there's more and more rules and everything you do, you have to follow into all kinds of little details. And I'm sure it helps avoid some problems. Somebody might have submitted an expense report for a glass of beer when in fact it's illegal. And somebody might have flown the different, I don't know, airline or class or whatever it is and something would have happened. But at the same time, we are creating costs on everybody in the organization. And we're creating lots of systems that are all about preventing low probability bad things from happening 
but the cost is we are decreasing people's autonomy and happiness and we're increasing tremendous amount of of burden on them and and i see this happening every year a bit more let's stop to take a quick break we'll be right back Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter.com. 
the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use HIMS from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMS. Dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So to some extent, these rules or these bureaucracies are standardizing people as opposed to allowing them to have more control yep. in their lives. Yeah, and, and they're probably effective in decreasing the probability that some, you know, non-savory people would do something bad. But 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 in doing so, it might make the pie smaller. So you can risk. That's right. If you, if you have, loosen the bureaucracy, you could uh, the pie will be larger. You could risk the pie being smaller yeah. on the outliers. Yeah, and uh, in in psychology, there's kind of this idea that people are either motivated by promotion or prevention, where they look at the glass half full or glass half empty. And I think lawyers are all about prevention. I'm not sure they have to, but you know, I think the profession is like that. Right. And they have and, to look at the worst case scenario. A contract right. is basically a list of worst case scenarios. That's right. And and if by but by looking on the worst case scenario and trying to eliminate them, there's also the question of what is the cost of that and how much are you basically decreasing the probability of businesses to do something interesting or innovative or exciting. Um and and I, I really worry about that. I really I worry that we live in a world with so many regulations that it's just tiring and heartbreaking. There's a there's a company I will not mention who they are, but they they recently put all their rules and regulation in a little app for their employees. So and the idea was that their employees could all the time look at all the rules and all the regulation, what's forbidden and, and so on. What would be worse is if they made the app like <laughs> like in your brain, so that if you started like talking to somebody in the bathroom the, and it would start beeping. That's right. Maybe they could make the alert that every time you talk to somebody, they, it's not, but but you know the, their idea was that this would just help people comply with the rules. 
but it just means that people think about the fact that there are rules all the time, mm. and they have to consult with this all the time. And I think that every time you you open the rule book to find out if you're doing the right thing or wrong thing, you're just not interested in doing anything helpful or useful and so on. It just kind of sucks the joy out of life. This this makes me think of parenting a little bit because I find my you know best relationships with my daughters occur when. I, I'm relaxed about the rules. I just don't want them to hurt themselves. <laughs> so, you know, the more you kind of try to establish rules, like be home by, you know, 8 p.m., then they're not just not going to like you. It's not like it really matters for their overall life, you mm-hmm. know, later on. And, uh, you know, it's it's a good thing to relax. In general, it's a good thing to relax on with, whether it's children or spouses or colleagues or whatever. Yeah, and... And it gives and it gives people a sense of uh, autonomy and control and respect and reciprocity. And if you have a system that just has rules, it just sucks all of this away. There's, there's another story I I tell in the book. It's a it's a story about a, a small company. Uh, there was a company run by this woman, um, and for a long time she would just have like handshake agreements with her suppliers, and everything was fine. Then as the company was getting bigger and bigger, uh, lawyers got into it and they would get into discussion with the suppliers. And often the discussion was, as you said, uh, going over worst case scenarios. What would happen if your supplies would poison our customers? And what will happen if they would be flammable? And you know they would write all of these things and they would go into meetings with the lawyers and the suppliers felt like the lawyers were blaming them for trying to poison and you know, or accusing them of a future. Yeah, that, that's right, that's right. Um, and, and they said that they got to sign the contract, but there was no goodwill left. Before, when there was a handshake agreement, you know, if something needed to be adjusted, that was fine. That was part of it, right? We agree to do something and I do my best. And if I need to adjust, I adjust later. But if you're in a world that is governed by rules and you just accuse me of all these terrible things and now you need me to adjust, I'm not interested in doing it, right? I, I have no goodwill. I'm, I'll charge you for it. But I'm not going to do it out of out of goodwill. You know, and th- th- there's a um, a similar thing in Freakonomics where uh, there, uh, the school saw that ev- uh, people were late at dropping off their kids, mm-hmm. and so they penalized them. There was a financial penalty for dropping off your kids late, and more people started dropping off their kids late because now they knew the cost of dropping right. off their kids late. And it's the same thing here. When you Once you establish boundaries, it's like, okay, people understand now how far they can go over the boundaries and still have a decent life. That's right. So, so this, uh, this paper that you mentioned is by Uri Gnizzi and Aldo Rotticini. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, actually they have two papers on this. And, and they basically show exactly, uh, as you said, that, that when there's a goodwill, people are late from time to time, but they feel guilty about it. And they try to do something uh, better. But when you create a fine and a rule, people say, oh, like it's $5 an hour to keep my kid in daycare. You can have them for seven more hours, right? There's no, right. Th- there's no problem. And the other thing that happened was that they took the fine away. Goodwill did not come back, ah, right? Because, because when you move from what we call social norms to market norms, where you move from kind of a personal relationship where we say we'll try to help each other out to a relationship in which, okay, it's the cost this is like there's a menu for services. This is the cost. Feelings leave the, the relationship. We don't care about each other 
anymore. Right now, it's just it's just transactional, right? This is what this is what it costs. And when you take the fine away, caring doesn't show up immediately back. Is there any way to rebuild that trust? And and again, I want to yeah. I want to remove it from from the experiment to the to the listener. Like, how do I take this in my life and I become you know you know improve my relationships, be more motivational to the yeah. people around me? So, okay, so 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 trust is really about long term. Uh, our our long term relationship, right? So, um, okay. So let me say something about trust. So, so there's a game that economists play. It's not a real game, but it's a game that economists play, and it's called the public's good game. Public goods. Okay. And imagine the following version of the game: and there are ten people. And every day they wake up and they each get ten dollars, and they can keep that money for themselves, or they could put it in a central pot. Whatever they put in a central pot grows five times during the day. In the evening, it's divided by everybody. Right, so it, that's kind of what it means to live in a good society. You kind of put some money in the central part, and the money increases and helps everybody else. Everybody. So what happens? Day one, ten people, ten dollars. Everybody puts their money in. Hundred dollars. Multiply five times. Five hundred. Divide equally by everybody. Everybody gets fifty dollars. Right, and this continues for a while. And it's a great world, right? You wake up in the morning, you get ten. You put in the central part in the evening, you get fifty. Wonderful world. One day. One person puts zero in. What happens? Nine people put ten dollars in, ninety dollars, multiply five times, four hundred fifty, divide equally by everybody, everybody gets forty-five dollars. One person has their ten. So everybody has forty-five, one person has fifty-five, right? So that person betrayed the trust and they benefit in the short term. What do you think happened the next day? Nobody put in. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody puts in. And the the notion here is that they're kind of two equilibria. There's a there's a resting point in which everybody participates, but if one person deviates from that, it quickly collapses to nobody participating. But you know this 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 uh, so so obviously, and you mentioned this earlier. Most people think in terms of short term mm-hmm. happiness as opposed to long term, and there might be a lot of evolutionary or genetic reasons for this. Who knows? And also, I think there is some research that shows some people even have the gene for short term as opposed to the gene yep. for longer term. Um, and this is related to a lot of things like going to the gym, sitting down and, and writing or doing your research, uh, spending extra time with my family. Uh, how do you kind of train yourself to motivate? Like nobody would ever go to the gym for yeah. just if, if they were short-term motivated. You go only for long-term reasons. Yeah. So how do you retrain your brain to be more long-term? Even not, not totally, but even a little more than it is today. Yeah. So, so, so I don't think that the the right approach is to say train your brain. Mm. I think that the right I'm approach. I'm wrong again. You're, no, 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 you're no, demotivating no, me. No, no, no. I think that the right approach is to figure out how you build an environment that makes you think long term all the time. So, so think for for example, what is your most long term relationship? Probably your significant other. Right. What what happens in in that relationship? Uh, imagine that you decide to have a. A, a one day, imagine you decide to have a day-to-day relationship. That every day you woke up, you look lovingly into your significant other's eyes, and you say, what do you say, honey? Shall we do this for another day or stop today? And, you know, you will do it. Um, how much would you invest in the relationship? How much, how much would you suffer a few weeks of something difficult for the other person? Not so much. 
right? What what happened is that we make this commitment of um, of marriage, and we say we're going to be here for a long time. Now, it doesn't always work out, but but we start with this idea of having a long term perspective, and having a long term perspective actually helps. The same is true, by the way, for the game I just described to you. Because if you basically are explicit and tell people we're going to play this game every day for 10 years, people do play better. So, so there, are, there are things. So, so imagine I hire you. What, what's the difference between giving you an hourly contract, a weekly contract, and say, you know what? I expect you to be here for at least three, three years. Um, so, I mean, I can give you all kinds of examples, but I, I do think that trying to create a long-term relationship and basically kind of signaling to people that this is about the long-term is very, very helpful. And how do you signal to people, um, let's say even people you just meet or potential friends or, I don't know, just if you're speaking to an audience, um, which is a little more uh, uh, invisible connection, how do you signal to people that I'm building a long-term relationship with you? Yeah. So, so you know, there's not not one one recipe, but but imagine that we are in January, and you basically are talking to people and what the company is going to be in December. Mm-hmm. So uh, last year, last year I was thinking about what to give uh, the people who work in my research center for the end of the year, um, and uh, what I decided to do was I asked everybody to tell me uh, what is one thing that they want to learn, uh, where in the world they want to learn it, and I said I'll send them to that place for two weeks to learn whatever they they wanted to learn. Ah, so you gave control, you had them think long term, Yeah, they had some ownership in what they're in their knowledge. They improve their skill set. That's right. And I told them that I'm explicitly interested in them improving their skill set in any way that they want, not just in a way that I find I find useful. Right? It says I'm truly interested in your long term well being, and I'll fund uh, something like that. Now, that's not the the right answer for every organization. But it has a lot of the right elements of of showing people that you're interested in them, them long term. And what about what about self motivation in this case? Like, so I want to think long term in terms of going to the gym mm-hmm. or nutrition, yeah, or reading. Yeah, those those things are tough. There's all kinds of ways to to improve it. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a couple a couple of them. So the simplest version is put stuff in your calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually tried this. We had a little startup and we basically said, you know what, the problem with the calendar is that it's, it's good to write meetings, things that start at one point and end at one point, but it's not a natural repository for I want to exercise or read or call my mother or stuff like that. So we said, what if we created um, a calendar that we ask people to tell us what they want to do and we will schedule it for them. And we would create this Elements that can move in time. So if you say you want to do laundry, you can do any time in the next week, somewhere in the evening when you're home, and you can probably do a few things when you're doing laundry as well, right? You don't have to focus just on laundry. Mm-hmm. If you want to run, we should figure out if it's better for you to run in the morning or in the evening and uh, how many times a week and, and so on. So we created a little app that basically asked people what they want to accomplish, and we took over the task of scheduling 
where it was going to be. And you know what? You put things on people's calendars, they start doing it. If you're, if you're a calendar person, you open your calendar and you do what you're told. So it's interesting because this is verse, versus, let's say that my gut response, how do you motivate somebody to exercise yeah. more, is verbally I would teach them the benefits of, I would yes. tell them the benefits of exercising more. But but that's not an, an action. It's just me telling you and you have to decide whether you're going to believe me or not. But if it's actually in your calendar, you again feel like you own it more. Like you have you have to actually have a reason not to do it in order that's to right. not do it. And, and this is important. You actually reject it, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's written on your calendar, like if you don't exercise today, did you decide not to exercise? No, you just didn't decide to exercise. It's not the same thing. But it's if written to you that you're supposed to exercise now and you're saying, no, I'm not exercising, it's a very different feeling. Right? And, something- and, and again, this is kind of this, um, there's an overlap between, let's say, persuasion and motivation. Because if I mm-hmm. want to persuade you to exercise, you just gave me a method yeah. to do it. And you gave me a variety of methods to, to persuade people to do things and yeah. to persuade myself to do things too. I can give you my calendar and say, tell me when I should be writing and tell me when I should be exercising. And That's right. So, and, and this is relying on the idea that you already want to do something in principle, but intentions are not a good recipe for action. So we need to help people by making the actions more concrete. Intentions, thoughts, rational behavior are not motivating in general. No. You know what? It is, it, is, it is terribly, terribly sad. But think about all the cases in history where we had good behavioral changes for the good, for the better. Like when? Um, you know, people brush their teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put seatbelts on. Uh, we reduce smoking from 40% to 20%. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that we, we generally do. We, do vaccina- we give vaccination. Um, we stopped throwing as much trash uh, out of the window when cars are, are driving around. Um, there's all kinds of things we could be proud of. Yeah, a little proud. But you know, there's all kinds of things we've done. None of them were based solely on information. Uh, think about something like, let's just take driving. Think about seatbelts. How did we get people to wear seatbelts? Was it informational? We said, hey, this is dangerous. And people said, oh yes, it's dangerous. Let me, let me. no. It was fines. It was kids in the back screaming, saying, why are you tying me in your tooth? And it was these annoying beeps in the car. Right? Think about texting and driving. We're, we're unable to control this epidemic. Right? Um, you know what happened in states that made it illegal to text and drive? Uh, accident rate went up. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because people stopped texting over the wheel and they start texting under the wheel. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but, but in all of those things, just telling people something is dangerous is no recipe for improving behavior. And here's another one. There was a recent paper that looked at all the literature ever to be conducted on financial literacy. Financial literacy, you know, we spend in the US between seven and $800 million a year. Seven to $800 million a year. It's a lot of money to teach people how to deal with money. And you know what? When you teach people how to deal with money, they remember not everything, but they remember some of it. But do they act differently? Do they start saving? Do they budget? Do they spend less? I mean, what, what do they do in terms of real action? And the results show that the improvement is about 4%, which is tiny. The improvement is lower for people with lower social economic status, and it goes down over time. 
So immediately after the plan, there's an improvement of 4%, and then it goes down over time. And in total, they estimated that we, for seven to $800 million a year, we get financial improvement of 0.1%. Tiny. And, and why? Because it's one thing to know something. I should exercise, I should eat less, and so on. It's a very, very different thing to act. So, so there's kind of a, a belief, action, intention, action gap. And we need to help people figure out how to, how to close that gap. So let's say taking just me, I want to exercise more. How should I think long term? How can I, do I, do I visualize my day and include and think long, or do I visualize myself as an old, healthy old man and so that trains me to think long term? Yeah. So look, it is possible to change some things about how we visualize ourselves and so on, uh, but it's not the easiest path to exercising. So one path is put things on your calendar. Another path is, uh, w- w- the term I like is that uh, we get people to do the right thing for the wrong reason. So the right thing is to exercise. What's the wrong reason? For example, one wrong reason is to prepay to meet a trainer at the gym. Mm. And then you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like going, but you've prepaid and you're a little stingy. And you say, I don't want to lose my money. So you show up anyway. Or another wrong reason is to make an appointment to meet a friend and go exercising together. Mm. And you might not care enough for you about your own health, but you certainly don't want to disappoint a friend. So there's all kinds of ways to, to get us to behave in other ways. And then a third kind of big way is to think about habits and a little bit about religion. And to say, how do we take the behaviors that we want to carry out and we make them either habitual which means we don't think about them we just kind of do them without thinking running is a little tough right it's not that if like you know it's one thing to pick your nose as a habit or bite your nails or not knowing exactly where you're driving but but running is not something you say oh I'm running who knew I, I didn't pay attention I'm here so so for things like that what helps is creating a, a system of beliefs that supports uh, that activity so, so think about religion. Um, one of the things that religion does is to change the focus from one activity to one at a time to the system of activities. So if you, let's just take something non-secular, uh, something secular. So let's imagine that you believe that good people recycle. If, if you just think about recycling without any beliefs, every day you wake up and you say, should I recycle, should I not? How cold is it outside? How much money am I saving to the city? Is it worth it or not? But if you believe that good people recycle or the people who recycle go to heaven or whatever it is, you're not thinking about each activity by itself. You think about the whole enterprise of recycling. And every time you betray recycling, you betray the whole principle of it. So all of a sudden it becomes more, much more meaningful. Right, So if you think about exercising one day at a time, there are many days you'll behave badly. Right, it's difficult. Very difficult. But if you think about it as a, as a part of a system, it is, it is much, 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 much better. You know, um, this is related to actually your book, uh, one section in your book that I really liked in uh, the book Irrationally Yours. So that's your <laughs> advice column in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you're still doing it. Are you still doing that? Yeah. Okay, so... So this was like a collection of your columns, and there was one and, and great cartoons and yes, great cartoons. Yes, and there was one uh, section that I thought was fascinating, where um, you basically 
are talking about apologies. And uh, uh, you basically said that if I say I'm sorry to somebody, and even if I'm insincere about it, and they know I'm insincere about it, everybody six months later, everyone's still happier than if I don't say I'm sorry at all. Yeah. Why is that? Because and again, there's this is an action where even all the thoughts know this is all wrong, yeah. but somehow the action cemented the happiness even six months later. Yeah, and and you know, and it's not just about apologies; it's also about compliments. Mm-hmm. And so you know, even if they're insincere, and the other person knows they're insincere. Yeah, and 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 the reason is that we cling to the slight hope that there's something in there still, right? So so even if we know it's insincere, we say yes, it's insincere, but there's a little bit of it. Uh, still inside. Because I guess they had to, in order to apologize, I had to at least identify what I'm apologizing That's for. right. So, so sometimes, when even there's a hint of something positive, we, we cling to that. And I, I think actually that's a, that's a nice observation to think about motivation. And you know, when we try to motivate ourselves and other people, we can try and think about like the big meaning of motivation. But the reality is that we want to be motivated. We want to feel that what we're doing is useful and contributing and helpful. And we want to do it and we cling to any little piece of, of motivation to increase our, our motivation and the motivation of, of others. And this is what actually makes motivating people and ourselves so easy if we just tried a little bit. So, so, so again, like let's say I'm going to give a talk or I'm going to a sales meeting and I'm meeting a, a whole group of people. And I want to just from beginning to end be as motivational and let's call it persuasive as possible. Mm-hmm. What are like, let's say, and I, I know this is just blatant to ask it this way, but what are like the three ways, three best ways to do it? So I'm not sure about, about the, the best, but if I'm trying to do something, I would, I would say that the first thing is to tap people's emotions, not just their cognitive thinking. And 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 this is by maybe giving them meaning in some way. It it could be meaning. It could be an imagery. It could be something something like that. The second thing is to get people to play an active role rather than a passive role. In the, in the, I'm not saying get people to do something, but it's about getting people to think of themselves as as part as part of the the process, and to imagine a different life. So you gave give the example earlier that if we think about ourselves at an older age. We're motivated. So, if you show people pictures, um, f- you know, pictures. I, I take a picture of you now and I age it with some algorithm to see to show you how you would look when you're seventy. Don't scare me. <laughs> uh, people save more for retirement, right? Kind of, of seeing, kind of uh, getting a more visceral image of the of the aspect. And then I would say the other one is is a sense of control, a sense that you you can actually make things different if you took those those aspects. You took those steps. All right. Well, Dan uh, Ariely, uh, author of Payoff, which is, again, I'm going to call, you don't have to call this, I'm going to call it kind of a, a, a descendant of Man's Search for Meaning. <laughs> Thank and you. And also author of Irrational Yours, Predictably Irrational, uh, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, your great documentary on dishonesty. By the way, this reminds me, you started by asking me a question about dishonesty. We never got to it. Well, Another time, you know, another time. But there does again, there is a question, a relationship between motivation and dishonesty. I'll tell you one quick sco- story, and then and then we'll we'll end this. The dishonesty documentary scared the hell out of me. It is scary, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there's a specific story in there. So I wanted my this was 
10 years ago. So no one could throw me in jail right now, uh, or maybe not, I don't know. Uh, I wanted my daughter to switch schools. And now she wasn't always living with me. She was living with her mom most of the time who lived in a different town. But I listed her as living with me so she could switch to this school. Now, the woman who did that in the documentary goes to jail. <laughs> not not only goes to jail, her, her father goes to jail and he passed away in jail. Now, and to what I am going to ask you, it has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. I'm white. They were African-American. I've, nobody touched me, asked me, even gave it one thought of consideration. And clearly she was just thinking of her kids. Like she really yeah. didn't do anything unethical in my opinion. And she goes to jail for that. Yeah. So um, she did, she did, she starts, she started uh, with this interrogation of what was going on. She did fake documents later on uh, to try and get herself out. And that just got her more deeper and deeper. I would probably fake documents <laughs> too though. Um, I think that there's clearly something about being African-American that was a part of this, but part of it was also her fear was so high that she tried to dig her way out and only dug herself more in. I see. All right, well, it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Thanks very much. I recommend people read it to see all the outcomes of these and read the book Payoff, and I'll see you next time, Dan. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, thanks so much. This passed very quickly. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.